So tonight I'd like to speak about wise speech. Can you, can you not hear me in the back? Um, well, you think? Okay, testing, can you hear me in the back? Yes? Raise your hand if you cannot hear me. Okay. <laughs> okay, maybe a little higher. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, I think that's pretty good, huh? Can you hear me in the back? Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. So, as I said, I'd like to speak tonight about why speech. And um, it does feel like a little bit of an odd thing to do on a retreat, on the second night of a retreat. Um, but on the other hand, I'm delighted to speak about this topic. Um, you are speaking in the small groups in the afternoon. And it's a very common experience, even if you weren't speaking in the small groups in the afternoon, it's a very common experience when you're sitting in silence to get some kind of a sense about habits of speech. You know, oftentimes, we begin to hear how we speak to ourselves. Now we begin to hear more clearly how we speak to ourselves, the tone, the vocabulary we use. And this is very, very helpful. Also, for some, when the mind wanders, it wanders to dialogue. You know, that interesting thing that happens where we're having conversations with people who aren't even there. You know? <laughs> it's one of the more, it seems so real. And yet, um, you know, of course the person isn't there. But we can see the patterns and the ways that we speak when we find ourselves lost in inner dialogue. And this can be a really helpful thing because it helps us to see how we speak in our lives. I think this topic is so difficult. This arena of wise speech is not easy at all. It is so much easier to be mindful while brushing one's teeth. So much easier to be aware when we're moving around and doing this and that. You know, because it does bring in the whole realm of relationship. And it's not an easy realm to bring mindfulness into. I'd like to um, read you something. And I'm going to use the name Avalokiteshvara, which is the personification of compassion. We evoke your name, Avalokiteshvara. We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We evoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open-heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We will sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen in order to understand. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what is being said and also what has been left unsaid. And we know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering. Now, so when we, when we move into this arena of wise speech, we're also talking about wise listening. You know, because the ways that we begin to become aware of our speech, of the patterns and the habits, the sorrows, the ways that we hurt ourselves and others, the ways that we can help ourselves and others, this all comes about through listening, through receptivity, through being aware of what is happening within. Yeah, so interesting. I don't know if 
any of you have noticed this or if all of you have noticed this, but just from the group today, um, have you noticed that there's a couple of things that have become highlighted where your mind keeps going back to something that you said, you know, one phrase or one word or um, maybe it, it just keeps going back over the, the, the paragraph that you said, or maybe it goes back over something that somebody else said that kind of stuck in your brain. I'm kind of curious, is anyone having this kind of thing of something being highlighted? Yeah? Okay, good. I am feel reassured because <laughs> I do tend to know a little bit about how the mind works, but um, this is reassuring. Yeah. I mean, this is oftentimes what happens, that there is this highlighting, and then we repeat it. We said it once, and then we repeat it a million times. You know? And it's, it's like we're practicing it each time. You know? We're reifying it in our minds, and then we're reacting to it in some way. It's not just a thought that has arisen and will pass away. There's a reaction to that thought. There's aversion to it. There's self-consciousness about it. Um, there's clinging to it. Maybe there's pleasure. We like that we said it. We wish we hadn't said it, or we wish we'd explained ourselves better. Yeah. And it's, it's just so interesting um, to look into this and see what our minds are actually doing. And as I said, this whole arena of speech is really not an easy one. My first long retreat, which happened to be here at IMS, at one point during the retreat, I thought, well, that's it. I'm just never going to talk again. When I leave this retreat, I'm just going to be quiet for the rest of my life because I don't have any other options. Because I was, I was so um, surprised and you know, appalled, basically, at the memories of how I had spoken before the retreat. Just different dialogues arising in my mind, different interactions. And I was just so surprised and, um, as I said, appalled that there's this monk who um, doesn't talk. And um, his name is um, Baba Haridas. And he has just a little blackboard. This was years ago that I, I heard about this, so he might have another mode of, of communication now. But at that point, he had a blackboard. And from what I heard, it was a small blackboard. And he decided to be completely silent. And then when anybody asked him something, he would communicate, but just a little and just whatever would fit on the blackboard, which you know, would be quite laborious. So I thought, this is a great model for me. You know, this, is a, this is a perfect model. I just need to get chalk and a blackboard, and <laughs> then I'll be able to put up with myself for the rest of my life. You know, it's not easy to look into this arena. I think we really have to have enormous patience and um, sensitivity and care with ourselves, because it really is a practice. It's a practice. It's not something that we should already have attained. And it's a practice for those of you who are new and hearing about the Noble Eightfold Path for the very first time in your life. And it is a practice for those of us who have been on this path for a very long time. It is seemingly an endlessly rich and extremely beneficial practice to undertake. And with any practice, what do we need? With any practice, we need patience. We need interest. We need dedication. It needs to matter to us if we're going to undertake this. We need compassion. And oftentimes, and this is very true with wise speech, we need to be able to tolerate a lot of discomfort. Almost you could say that you need a strong stomach to um, begin to bring mindfulness to one's speech. And we really want an attitude of investigation instead of condemnation. Kind of a... um, what Ajahn Sumedho called an affectionate curiosity. 
instead of condemning what we hear coming out of our mouths, because we won't learn if we react with condemnation. The Buddha gave a lot of attention to this area, really a lot of attention to this area, because if you think about it, there are only eight path factors. There could be 10, there could be 20, you know, there could be many when we look at our lives, but there are eight path factors, and he devoted one whole path factor to this arena of skillful, kind communication. So it really matters. It matters in our life of aspiring to inner freedom and a life of non-harm. As a path factor, there are two aspects. One of these aspects is that looking at the guidelines for wise speech, which I'll move into after a while, really are guides for action. Really, they help us to see how we can speak in a kind way and how we can speak in a harmless way, how we can really get behind our deepest of aspirations in this life, which I know for each one of us is to know kindness. But also, the other aspect of this path factor is that it aids us, it helps us to begin to observe how we're actually speaking and not how we think we're speaking or wish we could be speaking or anything like that, but beginning to observe what is actually coming out of our mouths. It's an an aid in seeing our minds. We can see our minds through being mindful of our speech. Sometimes we might say, well, well, we can't see into our minds. It's all very fleeting. It's all very elusive. Um, it's non-material. You know, how can we see the mind? Well, one way to see the mind is to observe one's speech, to be awake and aware while speaking. As an investigation, this means devoting attention to listening to ourselves with compassion. As an investigation, as I said, it is a real guide to the inner life because it's a reflection of the mind. Being aware of our speech and being aware of the moment before we speak reveals intention. We can be aware without even speaking of what our intention is to speak. And our intentions are all over the map. And some we want to act on, certainly. And others we want to let go of. But if we don't even know what the intention is, we don't have that choice. So it reveals intention. It reveals our mental states. It reveals our emotions, because oftentimes we are speaking through a mind that is clouded by a mental state, and we don't even know it. An emotion is happening, and we don't even know it until it's out there kind of hanging, you know, dangling. Ah, that's how I feel. That's how things are mentally, you know, emotionally for me right now. We can be aware of this, and it's so helpful. So it helps us to see our minds. Now, I think it's really important to make the point that we don't want to identify with our speech. No, I mean, we don't want to identify with any aspect of this body-mind experience. We always get ourselves in trouble with identification. So we don't want to identify with our speech either. It's being aware of our speech as informational. You know, it's very, very helpful. But just because we speak in a certain way it doesn't mean we are that way. We can speak in anger. It doesn't mean that, oh yes, I've discovered I am an angry person. Because then we may speak in an utterly kind way. Ah, now I'm a kind person. We might speak in an irritating way. Now I'm an irritating person. So on and so forth. So we don't want to identify with our speech. We want to see what's happening, be aware of intention, be aware 
of speaking. Be aware of emotion. We want to see the gap between ideals and actuality because speech is an expression of that gap. And through being aware of our speech, we can discover an harmonious ground, actually, that flows between our inner experiences and outer contacts with this world. Speech can really be a great vehicle of inner freedom. And we're moving, we're actually shifting. It's a process that we go through when we are mindful of our speech. It's a process of shifting out of speaking in a mechanical way that oftentimes we claim to be spontaneous but is not into a conscious way. So we're moving out of unconsciousness into consciousness. We're moving out of habit into mindfulness. We're moving out of speaking in a reflexive way to learning what a wise response might be. We're moving out of reactivity to speaking with wisdom and with compassion. We discover when we are aware of our speech in an ongoing way, we discover different themes that we might not have known about. We begin to discover the tone of how we speak to ourselves and others. We begin to be aware of the vocabulary that we might mechanically use. And we can um, question whether we still want to use the kind of vocabulary that we're used to using. Now, we're not at all trying for perfection. Now, this is not part of this path to try to be a perfect speaker or to speak in what we consider a spiritual way, whatever that means. Now, we're not aiming for perfection. Um, it's much lighter than that. It's much more of, of a lighter um, process than that. We really want to look and question and investigate for ourselves. It is a way to shed some light on a complex inner network. Sometimes when we look within, there's just a tangle of things. You know, we're going into a tangle. And so to be aware of how we speak is a way to see more clearly and untangle that tangle. To be able to know, which is the first step in practice, to know, to recognize, to acknowledge what's happening. And then, of course, to see if we can be with it in a non-judgmental way so that real learning can take place. So that real learning can take place and we can support our aspirations in this life. What we come upon, of course, when we begin to and continue to be aware of the ways that we speak is our conditioning. Now, it's there so clear. Our conditioning is there. And oftentimes, we can see that the ways that we speak have a lot to do with how we've learned to speak when we were young in our families. You know? And it can be quite helpful to, to notice this. You know, I grew up in a family that um, people were somewhat sarcastic. And I learned, among other things as well, you know, that's a huge generalization, but there was a lot of sarcasm running around. And I learned that that's how you say I love you, is to be sarcastic. So when, I mean, it was the language of intimacy, of course. Of course. How could it not be, you know? So when I got older and I was off on my own and, you know, beginning to um, have very close intimate contacts outside of the family arena, that's how I began. You know? People I especially loved and adored and valued as friends, I would be incredibly sarcastic with. I mean, it's amazing that I had friends because <laughs> <laughs> sarcasm does tend to push people away. And it was, um, it was eye-opening to, to recognize that that isn't the language of love for most people. No. <laughs> it, it, it really just isn't. So we can see um, our conditioning through how we speak, and, and we can see that we've learned it. And if we've learned it, we can learn a different way. 
Now this is the important part around conditioning. If we have learned it, it is possible to learn a different way. And that is why it's a practice. And that is why it's such a fruitful and rich practice. It's a fruitful and rich practice because unless we're going to be someone who decides not to speak, which is incredibly rare in this world, we can use speech in beautiful and healing ways. You know, there's this word, that Pali word, that's in front of all of the path factors, which is sama. So, you know, with mindfulness, it's, it's right mindfulness or wise mindfulness or skillful mindfulness. With um, um, intention, it's wise intention, skillful intention. You know, so there's this word sama. So, of course, with, with um, speech, this word sama is there as well. And it does mean skillful. It does mean wise. It's not a matter of recipes and formulas. It's not that cut and dried, you know, that we can come up with a certain recipe or a formula. I think that being aware of our speech fosters a kind of creativity and experimentation, and that this is really, really worth it in our lives. Because why do we speak? You know? When we speak, it can be healing or it can be deeply wounding. We know this because we've experienced it. We've experienced helping and we have experienced wounding. We have experienced having been wounded by the unwise speech of others. And I'm sure each one of us has experienced being greatly helped by the wise speech of another. Speech can be enormously unifying. It can be encouraging. Speech can awaken us and inspire us. You know, I think of Martin Luther's King's speech, I Have a Dream, the impact of that speech. One cannot help but be moved and be moved in fresh ways every time, I think. You know, the impact of that speech has been enormous. We speak in truthful ways, and this is healing. We speak in courageous ways, you know, challenging what we think is not true. We speak for the fact of intimacy, to clarify. Speech on another level is simply informational. We need to speak in order to inform ourselves and one another. Speech can be consoling, it can guide, it can support, and it can be affectionate. It can be appreciative. This is something that Shanti Deva said in the Bodhisattva Way of Life. Praise all who speak the truth and say, your words are excellent. And when you notice others acting well, encourage them in terms of warm approval. You know, it's so beautiful. Praise all who speak the truth and say, your words are excellent. You'll hear this talking. Your words are excellent. And when you notice others acting well, encourage them in terms of warm approval. Yeah? So our speech can be appreciative. It can be compassionate. It can be meaningful. A kind word at the right time can change a person's life. Now, always these kinds of things happen at CIMC, which is, IMS is kind of my home away from home, and CIMC is my home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in an urban Dharma center. Um, things happen all the time there where people will come wandering into the center and, um, and be suffering in some way, or just be confused, or just not know what to do, or what are, what are all these Buddhas hanging around for? And, you know, they, they want some access, but they don't know how to get it. And they stop in at the office, and we have a very kind staff at CIMC. And they stop in, and, and there's always a kind word from somebody who's there in the office. And it can make a huge difference in terms of, of so many things. But in, in that instance, in terms of whether can, one can find their footing in the Dharma. And for those of us who 
have known that their lives have changed because of having found our footing in the Dharma, it's a huge thing. A kind word can change a life. In terms of a um, little bit of instruction about um, how to speak, the Buddha said that we should say the right thing at the right time, in the right place, to the right person. <laughs> There's a little formula to, you know, the right thing at the right time, in the right place, to the right person. And um, the right thing in this case means the wise thing. We want to say the wise thing. We want to say what's truthful in terms of content. We want to be aware of our intention. He said to speak at the right time, and that means when it can be heard. So many times we are speaking and hitting our head against the wall, you know, because it simply can't be heard. That's when we need to be creative. It's not to shut up and not and decide we're going to withdraw and not say what needs to be said, but it's to take a step back perhaps and experiment. Sometimes experimenting with silence if we always need to speak is profound and illuminating. But in any case, to bring a creativity in instead of trying to say the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that by the millionth time it'll get in. <laughs> it's very helpful when things are difficult to not be under time pressure. Saying something when someone's just you know, running out the door, by the way, I have a big problem with this or that. No, it's so much better to try to find a situation where there isn't time pressure, if possible. And it's really, really helpful to speak after we've calmed down. When we're under the influence of clinging, of aversion, of anger, it's so, it's, it's just so up for grabs in terms of whether there is going to be clarity or not. I mean, there might be once in a while there might be real clarity, but most of the time it is the wisest thing to calm down first, to not be under the sway of the difficult emotions, the afflictive emotions, to calm down first. To say the wise thing at the right time in the right place. I think one way of interpreting this has to do with establishing safety. Sometimes when we have something difficult to say, to say it in a, a big context where the person's going to be put on the spot is quite different than having a heart-to-heart, -heart, you know? Settling down with that person and, and speaking with them and setting up a safe context. This can be a help. And to the right person means, I think there's different ways of speaking about this, but one way is that we want to talk to the person that we need to talk to. So if we're upset with our partner, you know, we don't want that mood to infiltrate a contact that we're having with somebody at the gas station or um, whomever it might be. You know, we want to talk to the person that we need to talk to. When we find ourselves in distress with someone, we can easily find ourselves going from one person to the next. And it's so helpful, I think, um, to go to that person if it's at all possible. Certainly, everything I say is I'm generalizing. Everything needs a, a creativity. But if it's possible to go to the person that we're having difficulty with, this is best. And it is preferable, of course, to not speak behind the person's back. So this, this is to the right person. And as George Sala said, not only to say the right thing in the right place, sounds like I had a little Buddhist teaching behind him here, but far more difficult to leave unsaid the wrong thing at the tempting moment. <laughs> and it is hard. It is so hard to learn restraint. But this is where our practice comes in so handy because in the sitting, almost when we're sitting and we're not moving, we're learning restraint. That's one thing that we do learn. We learn equanimity. We learn not acting in an impulsive way because 
we have the context of the sitting to help us instead of immediately. I mean, you can be sitting and think, I've got to make that phone call. You know, I have got to tell this person something or another, whatever it might be. I'm sure, you know, you have had that experience while, while you've been sitting. But then if you can just sit through that, if there can be some patience with it, then we can more clearly see, does the phone call need to be made? Maybe yes, maybe no. You know, but we can see with clarity instead of with panic. And then, you know, what do we actually want to say? What is our intention in speaking? So the practice of wise speech is to be aware of intention. It's to be aware of speaking, which includes, I think, facial expressions. Because we can say something and our face can be saying something totally different. So it does help a lot to relax the face. To be aware after having spoken and then to let go. This is a, a practice of wise speech. And to be aware, you know, is our speech being fueled by a particular emotion or by loving kindness and clarity and generosity? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it beneficial? Does it harm anyone? Is it the right time? The Buddha spoke about common pitfalls ways that we habitually speak and what why speech might look like. And as I speak, there's four of them, as I speak about these habitual ways of speaking and how this can be changed into wise, kind speech, um, just to see for yourself what the patterns might be. You already know something by being here. And of course, the older yogis in the group know a lot about um, the mind and about speech. So just to take a fresh look at it, whether you've heard this teaching before or not, you know, to see if you can identify particular habits and patterns for yourself. So the first has to do with speaking truthfully. It's kind of like the bottom line because we're practicing the Dharma and the Dharma means our aspiration is to see the truth of things. Now, so it's really hard when we're not speaking truthfully and we're aspiring to see the truth of things at the same time. When our intention is to speak what is true, our minds are quieter. There's a greater degree of simplicity within. There's a sense of self-confidence because we can trust ourselves more. We can respect ourselves more. There's a lack of pretense and there is a greater ease within our hearts. Life is simply less complicated. And one real asset to speaking the truth is that we do not have to remember our lies, yeah? which is not a small thing. It's so complicated to have to remember a web of lies. This is actually something that Tip O'Neill, who was a politician in, in um, the Cambridge area said, that he was really devoted to speaking truthfully because he didn't want to have to remember his lies. You know? When I was um, growing up, <laughs> other than the sarcasm, we, um, my sisters and I wanted to live kind of a, quite a different life than my parents wanted us to live. <laughs> we wanted to um, do what we wanted to do, of course, and we wanted to be free. And um, one time my mother said, um, she said, you know, I really, I have two sisters. She said, I really always wanted you girls to be free. I just never thought you'd carry it so far. <laughs> <laughs> so because of wanting to do what we wanted to do, the three of us came up with just such an elaborate system of lying to our parents about the car and about, you know, the hitchhiking and about, um, oh, I can, you know, go on and on. But the main point is that the three of us had to cooperate with one another around the lies. So we didn't have to just remember our own lies, which is really hard. We also had to remember two other people's lies <laughs> at the same time. I mean, I, you know, I just don't, I, I don't know how we did it without our minds bursting. But somehow, unfortunately, you know, to some extent, we were, we were pretty successful. So we kept it up for quite a while. 
And we all eventually moved out of the house and could do what we wanted to do and did not need to lie anymore. And at one point we realized that it was a habit. It was a habit. There was the residue of having practiced it. And my older sister, she was so great at one point. She said, you know, do you think we could start, you know, kind of cutting this out? Um, start, start telling the truth because we don't really need to do this anymore. And um, we, my younger sister and I, we actually had to consider it, whether it was a good idea or not. But I'll tell you, life became so much simpler, so much actually inwardly freer. And as I say, much less complicated. It can become a habit. I have a, a friend who um, had a habit of lying, um, actually as an adult, and he decided that every time he lied as a way, as a, as a practice, as a way to move himself out of it, every single time he lied, he was going to cop to it. He was going to say, I just lied. <laughs> and, and I thought, this is, you know, this is really a courageous and, um, and beautiful practice. And he, he really took it on with great dedication and seriousness. And he worked himself out of it because it's a habit. Anything that's a habit, if we work with it as a practice, can change. When we don't speak the truth, there's no intimacy between ourselves and the person that we're speaking to. It's actually separating. And it fosters confusion, which is the opposite of clarity. When we are committed to speaking the truth, we can breathe more easily. You know, it's kind of like when we first hear the, the Dharma, when we first hear the teachings. I think for many of us, our um, reaction is a, a deeper than usual breath. Ah, oh, somebody's telling me the truth. You know, somebody's finally telling me the truth. And it's such a relief, it's such a breath of fresh air. I think it's the same thing when we are committed to speaking truthfully. Um, it's, it's, there's a fresher um, air that we participate in. We can breathe more easily. Now, this guideline of truthfulness, you have to add useful. You know, we need to speak in a way that is both truthful and useful because we can really liberally share our opinion you know, our views and opinions about all sorts of things, thinking that it's the truth, you know? I hate your dress is actually an opinion. It's not the truth. You know, that's just a, an example there. But, <laughs> but it has to be useful. It has to um, cooperate with usefulness. And everyone deserves a private life, too. So, you know, it's not as if everything has to be answered simply because it's asked. It's one's commitment to truthfulness that's important. So this means also bringing truth together with kindness, not indulging in a view or an opinion that we may call the truth. Now, Alice Miller um, said this, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing her now. She said, if it's painful for you to criticize, you're safe in doing so. If there is the slightest pleasure in it, it's better to hold back. You know? I think this is so good. And we can be aware of that, that, that um, if there's some degree of pain there, if we're uncomfortable doing it, if we're not like thrilled to criticize, then you know, it's, 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 maybe there's courage there and it's, and it's positive. But that little bit of pleasure, that is what needs to be looked at. Or maybe you know, in some instances, a lot of pleasure. The second is unifying speech, which is speech that brings people together. It's speech that is non-divisive. And this aspect of speech has a huge um, place in the life of monks and nuns. Monks and nuns have many, many rules. But they only have a few rules that will get them kicked out of a monastery. And one of those rules is divisive speech, dividing in a community one group of in the community to from the other group in the community. It's seen as that serious to speak divisively that it's a deal breaker. You can no longer continue in that same way. 
if you're speaking in a divisive way. And, you know, to see when we're divisive, what is happening, what is going on. Sometimes it's resentment. Sometimes it is the desire for pleasure when we're speaking in a divisive way. Um, the problem is that the pleasure doesn't last and we move into fear that it'll be overheard or that it'll get back to the person that we're talking about. So it's really actually quite uncomfortable. Sometimes too, there can be a desire for intimacy. We can uh, go for it because it can feel emotionally bond bonding with the person that we're talking to about someone else. In a, in a divisive way. But the problem is that it doesn't hold up. There's less intimacy with ourselves. Some of this comes about through not knowing how to work with conflict in a skillful way. We end up talking in a divisive way because we don't know how to work with our anger and our conflict and our difficulties. I had contact with them someone named Tan Panya, who um, uh, was a monk when I was teaching in, or when, when he was teaching in Thailand, when I was practicing in Thailand many, many years ago now. And he kind of took me under his wing. I had a kind of a, a beautiful um, connection with him. And he gave me different kinds of help and, and guidelines, um, a, a little bit like a, like a spiritual father. And one thing that he said to me is, when you have to say something difficult, uh, you, have to, you have to do it yourself. You can't get somebody else to do it. You know, you, you just have to take it on. You just have to do it. You have to accept it as your responsibility and not try to wiggle around it. You know, you just have to um, work carefully with your, mind sp with your mind state before you do and um, be as calm as you can but not to avoid it. It is a skill and it can be learned. And some of the skill is non-avoidance of the difficult, learning to work skillfully with conflict. Because unifying speech does not mean avoiding. In this arena of unifying uh, speech being wise speech and divisive speech being unwise speech, we can have a real habit of finding fault. And there is this uh, Tibetan proverb, which is that it is easier to, um, uh, <laughs> let me catch it. It is easier to see an ant on someone else's nose than a yak on your own. <laughs> that was worth remembering. And I have a, um, something very good from, um, from Rumi. Four Indians enter a mosque and begin the prostrations, deep, sincere praying. But a priest walks by, and one of the Indians, without thinking, says, Oh, are you going to give the call to prayers now? Is it time? The second Indian, under his breath, You spoke. Now your prayers are invalid. The third, Uncle, don't scold him. You've done the same thing. Correct yourself. The fourth, also out loud, praise to God, I haven't made the mistake of these three. <laughs> so all four prayers are interrupted, with the three fault finders more at fault than the original speaker. Blessed is one who sees his weaknesses, and blessed is one who, when he sees a flaw in someone else, takes responsibility for it, because half of any person is wrong and weak and off the path, half the other half is dancing and swimming and flying in the invisible joy. Can we see the whole of things? The third aspect of wise speech is kind speech. And this is, comes about through being aware of harshness, being aware of the tone of our voice, being aware of our choice of vocabulary at times. We were having this um, kind of fun thing in the staff dining room when I was here teaching last week, trying to find another phrase for killing two birds with one stone. Um, someone came up with um, stirring 
two pots with one spoon, um, which you know isn't a perfect analogy, but I hand it to you to find a find a substitute for this. Um, harsh speech is speech that is aversive, impatient, you know, impatient, where we really think that something has to be a certain way, and if that person would just shape up, then we would be happy. You know, it's speech that is self-righteous, and it's so easy to get lost in this, where the self is center stage, where the self is taking precedence over the entire context of beings. It's not always easy to see this in oneself. And I think that when we get any feedback whatsoever from anyone else about this, it is wise to, um, to reflect on it. Yeah? It's wise to, to uh, see if this is so, because it is the easiest thing in the world to justify. I think it's so easy to justify when we're in a pattern of this, not once in a while, you know, but when it's a pattern of speech. Because oftentimes, when it's a pattern of speech, it comes out of anxiety. It comes out of a sense of powerlessness. Oftentimes, my observation is it comes out of past trauma. And it's an effort to try to get power now. It just does not work at all. So listening to the tone quality and being aware of the effect that it has on others. Because it's very easy to say where the other person's just being overly sensitive. And to take this um, this, um, in a different way. Cultivating patience and empathy. As Aldous Huxley said, most of practice is learning how to be kinder. Most of our practice is learning how to be kinder. This doesn't mean speaking in an indirect way. You know, I was, um, there, there can be a lot of spin these days where it can look a certain way, but it's really not that way. Um, there was a, a situation where some years ago where um, someone, an anesthesiologist, made a mistake, a fatal mistake, of giving the wrong kind of anesthesia to someone. And it was a mistake, and of course, one has compassionate for both the family as well as the anesthesiologist himself. But how the hospital dealt with this is, instead of calling it a death, they called it a therapeutic misadventure. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if you're a, the family, that, that, that it's a death in your family and it's called a therapeutic misadventure? Um, you know, the military, I hear, sometimes, instead of using the word killing, uses the word servicing the target. Now, servicing, yeah, it's somewhat mind-boggling. Or the word, and we've all heard this, limited or winnable nuclear war. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Willa Cather said, when kindness has left people, even for a few moments, we become afraid of them as if their reason has left them. Yeah? Kindness matters so much to us as human beings. And the fourth aspect of speech is speech that is connected and meaningful. And so this means looking at speech that is disconnected and merely agitating. And I think it's important to look for ourselves when we speak, what's behind the words, what's underneath them. Is it an effort to alleviate our boredom or our fear, to escape our loneliness and our restlessness? And now that we have a practice, is there another way? Can we look? at the loneliness? Can we be aware of the boredom and the fear? Can we um, heal this? Can we alleviate the inner pain instead of just trying to paper over it? Because disconnected speech is utterly exhausting to both the person who is uttering it as well as to the listener. And this is where I think we can see our habits, our habits of giving advice or rushing in to save others from, from themselves, you know, or from silence, or even being stoic and not talking can be a habit. You know, with a, just kind of a stance of withdrawal can be a habit. 
and can come under this category. It doesn't have to do necessarily with content. It has to do with intention. Um, I used to take care of older people for, a, for quite a long time. I would go into people's homes and, and care for older people. And usually the situations were just so simple and we would talk about the weather or we would talk about, you know, just very, very simple things in a, just a kitchen. You know, one room, the whole world was, was one room. And it's not as if the conversation was about the Dharma or, you know, the truth of things or, or anything like that. And yet it was connected, you know, because um, it was love. Because it was love, it was connected. You know? Sometimes we're afraid we're just going to become totally boring if we, um, if we work with wise speech. I, I saw this cartoon um, some time ago that said, I know some people who have achieved total serenity. They are terrible at parties. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we don't have to, <laughs> to be afraid. So being aware of wise speech as an area of investigation, listening deeply, to ourselves and to others, being aware of our intention, being aware of the effect that it has on others. And I'd, I'd actually like to um, end once again with Avalokiteshvara, kind of to sandwich the talk in between, um, between this. We evoke your name, Avalokiteshvara. We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We evoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open-heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We will sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen in order to understand. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what the other person is saying and also what has been left unsaid. We know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering. Let's just take one short moment. beings have ease of mind. May all beings listen with wholeheartedness. May all beings live with love and with compassion. Okay, so moving into a walking and the uh, last sitting of the evening, we'll do what we did last night. So we'll get together at, um, at 10 of 9 tonight. Do you need this? Do you need this? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.